0: Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 326, and I had a conversation with August Donnell. August is a United States Navy veteran. After 9-11, he felt compelled to do something, and he joined the Navy, becoming a nuclear reactor electrician. He's also a chef and a filmmaker. He's head of production at We Are The Mighty, which is a veteran-led media agency producing content for military families. And he was really born into showbiz because both his parents are Broadway actors. I really enjoyed talking with August. He's a fascinating guy. We talked about everything under the sun. And uh, I think you're really gonna enjoy this episode. If you'd like to check out other episodes that are in the vein of this one, check out episode 229 with Eric Jones, episode 122 with Jeff, or episode 46 with Luke Powell. If you're looking for older episodes of Hey Human and can't find them on your apps that only hold 300 at a time, you can go to blueberry.com slash Human with Susan Ruth. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com slash hey human with susan ruth there you'll find all the episodes from the beginning or you can visit com and click episode links on either the podcast section or the human section of the site in other news as i said check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show in general you can go to susan com to learn more about me and please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Also, please check out my new relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet? with sexologist and healthcare practitioner and my friend Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under youtube.com/slash are we there yet podcast show. Thanks for listening. Be well. Stay safe. Take care of each other. Alright, here we go. August, Danelle, welcome to Hey Human.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yay! Yes, yes, yes.
0: So, I've known you all of two weeks, maybe?
1: Two fantastic weeks. (laughs)
0: I'll never be the same. I know. You're (laughs)
1: changed for good now.
0: But uh, we chatted a little bit at the the get-together that we met at, and uh, you seem like a really fascinating guy. And every time I meet somebody fascinating, I think, hey, maybe... I could talk them into being on the show. So thanks for being here.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks yeah. for, thanks for d- thinking that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, do you prefer Augie or August?
1: Augie. Okay. Augie. August is for the credits and for when my mother...
0: Gets mad at you? Gets
1: mad at me. I understand. Yeah. She gives you the full August. government name. Yeah. 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 yeah, I get it.
0: Uh, you grew up here in California?
1: I grew up everywhere. So I was born here in L.A. Uh, both my parents were actors, and they had done... Broadway, a lot of Broadway before moving to LA, and they were trying to parlay Broadway into television and film, you know, like a lot of actors do, and uh, didn't succeed at all. So did, we
0: did they meet on Broadway?
1: They they met. So the the story of my parents meeting is interesting. It's it's connected to the story of my stepfather and my mom meeting too. So in in 1980, my mom played Evita on Broadway in Evita. I love Evita. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good one um, and it's, it's basically an opera. Is right? your mother so. Madonna? No, no <laughs> she was Evita before Madonna was Evita. Um, and uh, my, my mom was Evita and my dad when the when the when the production the Broadway production went to uh, the world tour my dad came into the into the cast as Che. So my mom was Evita and my dad was Che and that's how they met. Where the story is a little juicier is that the the Broadway production's musical director is a guy by the name of Paul who, uh who is my stepfather, who is Paul Geminiani Yeah. So if you're if you're into Broadway and you know, and you follow Broadway and you're you're a, a hardcore Broadway fan, you know who Paul Geminiani is. They call him Doctor Broadway. He's he's been a musical director on Broadway for a long, long time. Every pretty much every Stephen Sondheim show. Paul has has would and Avita uh, and many others. So uh, my parents met; they kind of fell in love. But before that, uh, my mom and my stepfather and I and I think I can talk about this now publicly because there's a book. Not that I didn't even think I was going to be plugging something, but like they might, my, my there's the story of my stepdad just came out uh, in a book form. There's a book about my stepdad now and it has this kind of stuff in it. Um, but my mom was, my stepfather was married at the time, and they were sort of having an affair. Scandalous. Yeah, right? And what I didn't know until I read the book was that my mom sort of gave him an ultimatum. When the Broadway production was going to, to the international tour, my mom was like, you have to leave your wife or this, we can't keep doing this. And my stepdad had a son, has a son and at the time he was, he was young and, and Paul, my stepdad, didn't feel comfortable leaving his wife in that situation. Um, so she said, okay, well this is not going to work. So they went on tour and my mom and my dad met and uh, a year later they had me. So they, they came back from tour and they moved to LA and they, and they had me here. And we lived here for about five years in LA. Uh, before they couldn't they couldn't take they couldn't take it anymore and they had to they had to move back to the east coast.
0: They couldn't take it. Why?
1: I mean, every story I hear from my parents about LA is just like awful. They they lived they lived in Van Nuys. They were struggling actors. Mm-hmm. They weren't getting much work. My dad worked at the airport. You know, my dad also had problems with uh, alcohol and substances, mostly weed, but like there was other drugs here and there. Uh, so it was just, it was kind of like a, it was like a tormented time for them. They, they didn't really, they, they weren't really finding their own way here Mm. and they, they always had a bad taste in their mouth with LA.
0: And then how did she finally end up with your stepdad?
1: Yeah. So fast forward 10 years. They did some more Broadway. My mom and my 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 mom and my dad were in Showboat on Broadway. Then um, my mom took that to Toronto, and my dad was doing the Fantastics in different places and Parade and lots of touring productions. So I was basically like a nomad for a lot of my childhood. I was kind of a gypsy because I was like traveling. Sometimes both my parents were on tour with shows, uh, or one was on tour, and I'd have to fly to to meet them to see them, and and. About eight or nine years old It finally got to like a place where like They, they weren't happy together mm. I mean I don't remember them happy together at all But, but it started to kind of uh, <clears throat> Manifest itself In like them just being separated all the time And usually by far distances So I'm like going from You know Texas Where my dad is like on tour with something To Toronto, Canada Where my mom's doing showboat in Toronto You know so I'd be like flying alone a lot Only child. Only child, yeah. So, finally, when I was about 10, um, my mom just kind of had, I don't know if there was like a breaking point or what, but like my mom just had to divorce my dad uh, because, you know, he was, he was always kind of like, he's very, the the quintessential alcoholic with denial, like it won't fess up to anything. Um, And uh, finally, that was just too much and and she divorced him and i don't know how much kind of uh planning was going on but there was not much time hmm. between the divorce and my mom remarrying paul you know like paul got divorced relatively around the same time from his wife alexander his son had had moved on to to college um and uh they my mom and paul both got divorced and I can still remember it like it was yesterday. Like my mom took me to see um, a Christmas carol in New York. It's every year during Christmas time. They do a Christmas carol at Madison Square Garden. And like after the show, she like brought me down to the pit where Paul, as the conductor, is like doing his thing. And that's where I met him for the first time. And, you know, soon after that, it was like he, you know, they bought a house together and that's where I lived from about twelve years old, like sixth or seventh grade, all the way up until I, I graduated high school.
0: Was that surreal to transition from the the first life into the second life?
1: I don't know if I don't know if surreal was the, the like the feeling the emotion I had. It was mostly just relief. Mm. You know, I feel like I was so uh, I was always kind of a happy kid, but it was always, I knew how tough. This I mean, it was like tough to, to live like this, you know, and I didn't have any friends, and I was always like moving to different places, um, and, you know, having some stability felt great, you know, and um, there was something about Paul's energy, and like, you know, at that, I'm 12 years old, I didn't know how in, important he was, but like just being able to like go to the pit, and you see the conductor, and meet him, or whatever, and he was, he was very nice to me, like he was very, uh, very kind i remember he used to, there used to be like laser discs you know before dvds if you didn't have a vhs you know if you wanted a more qu- a higher quality uh home video experience you'd have a laser disc and he he had all these laser discs and he one of the first things he ever did for me was like he taped a bunch of his laser discs onto tape for me on a, on a vhs cassette so i could watch like i don't know it was like ace ventura or like terminator 2 and these these oh, other movies nice. So yeah, those are like the early memories I have of him. And it it was just stability, right? Like I had no stability in my life until I was 12 years old. And and this man, Paul, like kind of gave that to us, gave it to me for sure.
0: That's such an interesting love story for them too, to find their way back to each other after all that time.
1: Yeah, it kind of is. I mean, it's kind of this like, you know, love never dies kind of thing, right? Where they were both in, in marriages that... They weren't happy in they both had single sons um only child sons in both of those marriages, Alexander and me and uh they finally yeah they they figured it out they came back to each other so it's and they're and they're still married today i think my I think my mom and Paul have been married um for for quite a bit longer now than my mom and my dad were married hmm. you know? do you
0: get on well with Alexander?
1: you know he's a very busy guy you know I never really lived with Ale- I never lived with him he was already in college and he would he would sort of live with his mom when he would come back to uh, New Jersey so I never really con- we never really had a bonding experience hmm. but but I mean he's like he's a mensch I mean he's like he's like a great guy he's remarkably talented he's been nominated for a, a, a Tony award uh he's he's been all over broadway he's done all kinds of stuff uh right now he's uh he's like building or 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 taking the the musical theater department of northwestern he might be like starting it but Mm. if it's he's like doing something with it where he's revamping it and like making it an actual you know thing at this at that college
0: a force to be reckoned with
1: Yeah. yeah yeah so he's like yeah he's he's a He's a he's a guy.
0: Were you showing aptitude for music or theater back then?
1: Uh, I always was. I could always sing. You know, I was always in the musicals, uh, and uh, and I was always like, you know, performing. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that's a lifelong thing that that I've been I've been involved in. I mean, I, I kind of like was born into this business. So it's it's something that that I've always it's in kind of in my blood, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and uh, there, was, there was a time in high school there where I kind of like, you know, in retrospect, I would say I kind of lost my way because I like started doing more sports and these things and like that was fine for a time, but it wasn't really what, you know, if, if, if my adult self would go back and do it all over again, I would have just stuck to, to performing because, you know, that's, just, that's, that's what I was meant to do. Um, not, you know, sports, sports are cool. Like they get you, you learn how to work as a team and stuff like that. But it's just, um, there's nothing like performing for people, you Mm -hmm. know, especially if you like have some semblance of talent, you know what I mean? You don't want to waste it. You know what I mean? You want to be able to utilize it. Um, so, um, yeah, high school was a, was an interesting time for me. Was it a
0: hard adjustment going from being the kid that's always the new kid probably. And then suddenly you're in a place that's like more constant?
1: Well, I was still the new kid, right? So, like, it just lasted longer. Because I the, the, the um, community that we moved into, like a suburb of, of, of New York City in Bergen County, New Jersey, like right across the George Washington Bridge, um, was very kind of insular. You know, it was communities of people that have lived there their whole lives. It wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of transient people. It was like, you know, people who have been there for generations... If not generations for like you know at least the the kids have been friends since kindergarten you know so being a new kid in that environment is tough and it takes a long time to kind of like be acclimated to that Uh, and i started in that in that area of the country in seventh grade and it took until you know at least halfway through high school to to actually feel like i had some you know, some footing, some some friends, and like that. I wasn't just a new kid anymore.
0: Did it make you extroverted or introverted?
1: I'm always extroverted. <laughs> I was. N- I've never been introverted, and that that's maybe the problem. You know, it's like I, when you're a young kid and you're extroverted and you're weird and different and you've got a big fro of curly hair and you're chubby, you know, you're fucking. I got a target on my back. You know, so um, that was that. Yeah, I was always extroverted. There was nothing that ever made me feel. Like, I'm not going to be myself. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of, like, finding friends who would be cool with that.
0: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Hmm. And that
1: continues to this day. <laughs> it's not just a high school thing. It's like, you know, you got to surround yourself with people who get you and who kind of are, who like it, you know, who don't just put on a facade, but who are actually interested in who you are and and get who you are. I mean, I'm kind of an eccentric guy. I'm very kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm very extroverted and at times intense and I have an odd sense of humor at times you know um, and I you know w- with creative people you know we, we have these we we have these drives in our lives like you know this is what like our, we have this passion in our lives that we're going after um, and there's there I don't have any separation of church and state in my life like my passion what I do creating whether it's directing or writing or singing or creating music or whatever it's like it's kind of it's the it's the vibe it's the flavor that i have in my personal life too you know so like i don't know this is top of mind because i've been talking to other friends about it but like you know inter intermingling with other people who aren't creative Mm -hmm. um it's always interesting for me because it's like it's like sometimes i feel am i too intense is there too much going on here am i like being too intense uh And sometimes they just don't speak the same language, you know, Um, and uh, and that's that's it. I mean, that's life, you know, but but it's always important for me to find people that, you know, you click with, you know, that's just something that we all want. You know, we want to want to want to click with people. Um, And I feel like I'm a pretty personable person, you know, and, and I can kind of mingle and meet people um, but like clicking with somebody, like someone that gets that gets you, is uh, that's 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 a valuable commodity for me.
0: I often find that humor is the big revealer for that, because it's such a specific personality trait, a, a kind of the kind of humor one has. Mm. It it'll either speak to another or not, and if it doesn't, it really doesn't. Yeah. But when it does. It's like light bulbs go off all over the place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting to see who laughs at stuff and who doesn't. You know what I mean? Like who, or who's offended by something or who might find it funny, you know? Like, I mean, that that's it. And, and uh, I was just talking to Sarado about this too. on because she gave me a ride right over. Um, Sarah Doe did? Oh yeah. oh She said she's going to bring you some flowers or some soup.
0: She says, I think she feels guilty about the COVID thing. Yeah. So but I had
1: no context. And she was just like, I should bring you some flowers or some soup. And I'm like, what? she's
0: adorable I love
1: her <laughs> yeah amazing amazing person um, but we were talking about comedy stand up comedy because she just did that wedding um, she made that like sort of story speech gave that story speech at the wedding um, and uh, we were talking about the power and the, like the amazing feeling you get from Performing for people, you you have a captive audience, you know, and they're all looking at you and they're all paying attention to you. And you have them; you can make them laugh, you can make them feel weird, you can do whatever you want to to them. And like um, you know, comedians, I think Jerry Seinfeld said something like this, but it's like it's very easy to tell if you're doing a good job as a as a comic. They're gonna laugh, or they're not gonna. Laugh. It's an involuntary response, you know, to get like a, a genuine laugh, and that's. Uh, you know, that's a good barometer on like, you know, mm-hmm. hey, do you get what's going on here? You understand? Uh, like, you click, we click, you know, you get my sense of humor. Um,
0: that's why I find stand-up so brave.
1: Yeah, but it's got, if you can do it. Yeah. If you can, like, have that power, I mean, what an amazing feeling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I know from our conversation at the party that uh, your, is it your father is Turkish? My mom. Your mom is Turkish. My mom's
1: dad was born in
0: Istanbul. Okay. Did that at all shape your, your childhood and identity?
1: Well, it does, it does today. Just, just it, you know, in my own mind it does. Uh, and, I, and I gravitate to that because I, I revere the idea of, of an immigrant. You know, because at the end of the day, or at the beginning of the day, I should say, that's what this country is all, all about. And that's what this country is made up of and we're not that old of a country right we're all coming from other places even at the beginning you know Um, so it's I just kind of like hold on to that because he know, I like the idea of my you know I like the fact that my grandfather was an immigrant you know came here in his own life and started a family had seven kids with a Polish Catholic woman in Chicago you know like that's a cool story to me and I think it shaped me indirectly as a kid because he was a bit of a tyrant with my mother and, and her, her brothers and sisters, very strict. And my mom was a very strict mother growing up, so I think that uh, definitely shaped who I was. Like more than more than like just knowing, because I didn't know him. He 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 died when I was very young. My grandfather, um, my other grandfather died before I was born. You know, that's the way it was back then, you, didn't live, you know, yeah. you're lucky to live to 65.
0: A lot of smoking, a lot of steak A lot of smoking, eating.
1: steak and alcohol, yeah. So, so, you know, I think the way it shaped me the most is just, you know, hearing the stories of how they grew up, how my mom, uncles and aunts grew up, uh, is just living in a household that was full of love, that was like very, very loving. They grew up in a Frank Lloyd Wright house, my grandfather was, a, was an architect, they had some status but he was very strict and like had very strict rules and that's the way i grew up you know and i I didn't i think my mom might have been a little over you know as i get older you learn these things you kind of see how your parents weren't perfect right as you get (laughs) into your late 30s right um and i think she was maybe overly strict on me because of how tumultuous my childhood was you know so she wanted to make sure i didn't end up like my dad she wanted to make sure that even though I'm moving around all over the place that I still have some structure within the way I carry myself and respect for people and respect for women and and, and making sure I, I mind my P's and Q's and do the right thing and work hard, you know? So, like, that was always really ingrained in me. Like, I, I was... School was very important. I was, like, you know, I, I was held to a high standard. I didn't really meet it until... Um, I mean, I barely met it in high school. You know, I was like a B student. But I didn't really, to my in my view here, I don't really think I met her expectation until I got into the Navy, right? Because I was, because the one school thing I was good at, the academics that I was good at was math and science, because I just kind of came to me. I didn't really have to know how to study. I didn't really have the structure. You know, when you move around in 13 different schools before you're in high school, it's hard to kind of figure out how to learn because school systems, especially public school systems across the country, number one, there's a lot of bad ones. This country has a lot of work to do when it comes to education, but but um, it's also like they have different structures and different requirements and different teaching methods and different curriculums, you know? So when I'm moving from California to North Carolina to Florida to Canada to New York to New Jersey to, you know, like... I'm kind of, I have no structure right so like it didn't I didn't really figure out how to learn how to study how to retain information I didn't really learn how to do that how, learn how to learn until I was in the military learning nuclear physics to be a nuclear reactor operator on an aircraft carrier and if there's one place to learn something it's the fucking military because they will make sure you know how to do it uh, and if you can't do it, I mean, there's plenty of people who can't f- do nuclear physics operating a nuclear power plant, and they'll have some other job, but if you can, you will. They will They will push you to your absolute... There's, there's no, like, if you could have done it if you worked harder in the military. <laughs> it's, doesn't, that doesn't exist. If you can, phys- if it's humanly possible for you to achieve this goal... In the military, they will get you to do it. They force you to do it. I mean, <laughs> you're just forced to do your best, which is one of my favorite things about my military experience. Is that it, and just my view of the military in general is that it pushes you to your absolute limits
0: and past. I would say,
1: sure. I mean, f- fine. Yeah, but but like like you know, if you have the aptitude to do something, if you have any potential to do anything, whether whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whatever you'll get there, you know, Hmm. and because you, because they force you to get there. And it's, you know, there's, there's plenty of instances where you might, you know, this person might not get there on their own.
0: What made you choose firstly, the military, secondly, the Navy as, as the place to go after school?
1: Yeah, it was, that decision was made in tandem with itself. Um, There's a bunch of reasons. You know, the one thing, and I get, I, get, I get asked this question a lot, but the the one thing, no, it's good, though. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very valid question. I'd be, I'd be weirded out if you didn't ask me this question. Uh, it's, uh, you know, from New York. I was a sophomore in high school when 9-11 happened. Uh, we, everybody in the high school, we're, you know, we're in the suburbs of New York City, and everybody's parents are working downtown, are working in Manhattan, and... Uh, it was it was pandemonium i mean to see like kids like running around crying not knowing where their where their parents are at you know it was it was kind of one of these experiences that you know, we i never had an experience like that before and uh something about that day stuck with me um my guidance counselor who was was always an advocate for me she was always in my corner because I was also a bit of a class clown in high school, and she was always trying to help me out and, and keep me out of trouble and keep the teachers off my back, and her brother uh, was Pete Gansey, who was the chief of the entire New York City Fire Department, who died that day, and you know to see her go through that loss and then to hear and he's a, he was a Vietnam veteran, um, and uh, to see her go through that loss and I think it took me many many years maybe until I got to the company that I'm at now, which is the company about uh, military media, basically. Um, Did I find out about the story about that he knew that the tower... So they put this um, command center for for all of the top-ranking police and fire department and all the New York City top-ranking people. There was a command center at the base of the World Trade Center, like in the basement, like where the train station was or whatever. Because they didn't think that it was going to collapse at that point. Then they realized, okay, this fucking building is going to collapse. We all got to get out of here. And he wouldn't leave. He's like, I'm staying with my men. I'm staying here. I'm running the show here. I'm, I'm not, you know, a leader doesn't leave his men. So he, he's the captain that went down with the ship, basically, you know. And that shit is just heroism. So that inspired me. I also, I always wanted to go, since I was about 11 or 12 years old, I wanted to go to NYU film school. Right. And I just, that's the, I didn't have any, any, I didn't want to go anywhere else. That's, that's the, I was like, if I'm going to go to film school, I'm going to go to NYU film school. That's, that's where I'm going to go. And I certainly wasn't going to get in at a high school. I just didn't have the grades. I didn't have, you know, the, these schools don't take more than one, two, three people from one school. So you have to be up there. And I was like 250 on the list of, of, of kids in my class, GPA wise. So i was like okay they're definitely not they're not going to come all the way down to why would they come all the way down to the bottom of the list to get somebody also i was raised to even though my stepdad had you know was well off i was raised by all three of my parents that like once you're 18 you're done like you you, you're an adult you don't you don't take anything from anybody anymore. you make your own way so um very expensive school right so like i the Navy was the way to do it. The Navy was the way to get to the place where I would get in, and the Navy was the, the place to, to help me pay for it. So why Navy? Uh, you know, I was raised by the Broadway community. Not only my parents, but, um, you know, the dancers and the singers and the whatever that I, you know, that I was, that were my surrogate parents my entire life. I had never I mean I mean you know, my grandfather was a pilot in World War II, he was a Marine Marine Corps pilot in World War II, but I never came in contact with the military ever, you know. I still to this day have hardly fired a gun ever, even after being in the Navy, you know. I'm not interested in holding a gun. I'm not in, I wasn't interested in in going to war, but I was interested in supporting whatever we were doing in retaliation of nine eleven, right so like you know I, I, I combat for me is not something that I that I I wanted to avoid that at all costs right it's not that's not built for that um, but the Navy was a way to to you know be a part of whatever we were doing but in a different capacity uh, and then once I figured out that I could do this job that was like very important and like involved. Um, and needed this nuclear reactor operator thing Uh, that was very attractive to me and it looked like a huge challenge like you're going to go to this school for two years for two years you're in the Navy for two years before you even go on a boat you know it's like you have to learn this job and I was like this sounds really hard.
0: Do they figure out what your aptitude is then and, and give it to you, or do you say, hey, I'm interested in this thing, and then...
1: They test you. Okay. <laughs> they, they tell you what you're gonna do in the Navy, basically. Yeah. At, at least in that, that year, 2004, uh, they give you what's called the ASVAB test, and this is given to all branches of the military, uh, people who are, who are coming in to enlist in the military and this is like the uber crazy insane aptitude test it's got everything on it it's got like everything from everything an sat has you know to like rudimentary like you know kind of iq testing to like how does a carburetor work on a car so there's like plenty of stuff on the test that you might just totally not even fucking have an idea about and totally flunk it out but they want it they want to know what you what, what you can do they want to know you know could he be a mechanic could he you know does he know more about weapons does he know more you know like what what is this person or she what is what does this person know about uh, so we can place them so I did okay on the ASVAB I got an an 80 the 80th percentile right Um, a lot of nukes are 99 a lot of nukes are you know doing better than every everybody else right but Because my, and a lot of times an 80 wouldn't be good enough to to get into the the nuclear power program, but because my like math and science scores were, were better, they gave me another test and this was just physics, you know, like basic physics.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's a funny way to put it, but yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, not like nuclear physics, you know, or, or or reactor physics, but like, but just, you know, the, the, the baseline physics. And, uh, you know, like stuff you'd learn in high school and, and I did well on that. And and they were like, okay, the only job you can do is be a nuke. You're either going to be a nuke, that's what they call it, being, being a nuke, you're either going to be a nuke or you're uh, you're, you're not going to join the Navy. That's kind of the way they put it at me. Because I was, I was thinking, I'm going to go in and maybe like do something with a camera, you know, like maybe be some kind of like videographer or something. So I can keep like down the, 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 the road of being a, a filmmaker somehow. Uh, and but but still be in the Navy and they were like no no they, they, like we have plenty of those we need when you when you test into the nuclear power program they do whatever they can do to for they give you money sometimes they'll give you a bonus they do all these things to, to, for, to get you into the school program because through the school program they lose about 50% it's the attrition is about 50% so they have to get as many people that might make it through the, the school to get to the fleet because they need I mean an aircraft carrier there's about 300 nukes on an aircraft carrier there's about 50 or 60 nukes on a, on a sub and there's you know there's 13 aircraft carriers and there's like 20 subs or something
0: you know? <laughs> I bet you're very happy that you ended up on an aircraft carrier and not well, that's, a submarine <laughs> that's, <laughs> the, <laughs> that's the
1: that's the good that's the kind of nice thing I guess because there's such little uh, smaller amount of people fewer amount of people on a submarine you actually have to opt to be on a sub mm. You have to like they get enough volunteers that want to go sub that they don't need to voluntold as we say in the military someone to go submarine. So I was like, no, fuck, I'm not going to submarine. Fuck that. It's 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 cramped enough on a humongous aircraft carrier. I mean, if you ever seen an aircraft carrier? It's massive. It's like almost as big as a huge cruise ship, right? It's like a airfield that floats. But there's six thousand people on a fully loaded aircraft carrier. I mean, it's 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 insanely packed with people. So there's people everywhere so like you know when you're enlisted you're you're the dregs you know so you're sleeping in steerage you know like like we had a when you sleep in in the navy you sleep in a place called it's called birthing and you go in and we call them six packs because you live in this tiny little area that has two bunk beds on either side but instead of just two beds they have three so in about the same amount of space like that, and like half of what you're with there right you have you have three people living i mean not' but it was just smelly in there <laughs> oh well, in the nuke quarters, yeah, because all those guys are like the i mean talk about i'm sorry, my fellow nuke brethren, but like talk about like dork nerd uh what the, what's the new term that is
0: Oh, incel? incel?
1: Yeah, like, it's kind of like, I mean, you know, not that they're... That's
0: word. involuntary celibacy, though. Involuntary <laughs> Which, I guess...
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the, I mean, so, the, the, it's funny, because it's like...
0: But smart, I mean, that's... Incredibly thing. smart, I mean... You need those kinds of people to...
1: That's why, I mean, that's why the military is so interesting, is because it takes all shapes and sizes it takes all kinds of people mm. um, I mean musicians it, it takes all kinds oh, of oh the
0: Marine Corps band is badass yeah
1: Marine Corps Army Field Band it, we were talking about my dad and, and he's he's this you know he's not the quintessential my dad's an alcoholic and he fucking you know beat me up and, and that he's the exact opposite he's like
0: got drunk and painted
1: <laughs> kinda I mean he would get drunk and play the guitar oh and he'd want me to sing with him, and he would get drunk and be like, you know, the, the, um, he would get, you know, and he still gets drunk and calls me, and and he, he, like, has these big, overly eccentric, overly complicated, distorted views of the world, right? Like, so he's, he, he, he kind of... Oh, he has this complex where he feels like the world is out to get him, and that the world's unfair, and that people suck, and people are assholes, and everything. But like, everything I do is—I mean, I could get arrested, and he would. Well, he one he would be like that fucking cop didn't know what the fuck he was doing, and you're the you're in the right, and like everything I can I can do no wrong, right?
0: That's sweet.
1: It's sweet, but it's distorted and it's and it's false, you know, and it's not it's not healthy, but. Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas
0: oh, what a movie. is my
1: dad. I mean, his, his you know, not that my dad is that sad to want to kill himself with alcohol, but his mannerisms. And that's where I really fell in love with Nicolas Cage where he was able to embody that character. He won the Academy Award for that. But, but he was able to embody that character and the idea of a like kind of a flamboyant insane uh alcoholic who's got these real deep dark demons and they come out in these like "Ah, ah," you know like kind of crazy ways and that's part of who just nicholas cage is um is my dad you know he does he's like very loud i mean he's he's basically an opera singer you know and he's he's a very kind of loud and and big person and and weird You know, like once you get you get to know me a little bit more, you'll know that I'm weird. But if you think that I'm weird, like I mean, he's like next level. Right. You should
0: see that movie. I
1: gotta see it. Yeah. I gotta see it. Uh,
0: So, we stopped for a second so you could use the facilities. Oh yeah. And you saw that I have well, I'm Nick Cage. Picture when you first walk in my door. Right. He protects the
1: place. He, that's a good. guy to have it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then I have the poster from the uh, from his most recent movie on my refrigerator. And uh, something
1: something something talent unbearable
0: weight of massive talent. Right. And it was fantastic.
1: I to gotta I with. gotta see it. I gotta see it because I also love meta. In movies, I love it when we're. Oh, like it's very meta. Yeah, I love it when it's like we're sort of seeing into the world of, of the real Nicolas Cage and yeah. you know what he what he goes through as an actor and that kind of thing. So it was
0: delightful to go to that premiere because before the movie they showed trailers, but they showed trailers from all of his movies.
1: Oh, that's hilarious! That's so perfect. It, it was great. It's just all about Nick Cage. It was the so Nick wonderful. Cage show.
0: And there were um, people dressed. In the audience was filled with people dressed in various incarnations of mm-hmm. Nick Cage characters, and then they had these carnival-type Nick Cages mm. with giant Nick Cage heads from various movies.
1: It's become a thing. I got I got friends it's, with like Nick Cage pajamas with his face all over them and stuff. He's the best. It's like the whole this whole thing right now. He's the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nick Cage is becoming like a fashion uh genre
0: yeah i are love you, are it are you wearing
1: I, nick cage tonight yeah he's
0: he's just i would he would be a great interview. i would love to interview him
1: oh fuck are you kidding me he
0: would I'll be come fantastic. and
1: film it if you get nick cage yeah Jesus i would Christ. love that if
0: anyone's listening that knows nicholas Cage, yeah. please set that up for me goodness um all right so back to you okay uh why navy over all the other branches then
1: it was about not being in the shit
0: Okay. Oh, right. I'm sorry. We did talk about it a, a little, little bit.
1: A little bit, yeah. But yeah. but also once I figured out,
0: you didn't want to. You didn't want to. Like the Marines are the first to show up. Marines, to all the, the terrib- army, terrible stuff. And
1: Marines, army, and and even part part of the Navy, right? I mean, the Navy SEALs obviously, Navy Seals, but but, yeah. the, but there's plenty of like the Navy Seabees are the ones building shit over there. Then you know the corpsmen, the Navy corpsmen are the ones with the Marines fixing them up. I mean, if you want to talk to someone who's been who has some serious. Demons, it's a corpsman, because they, they see all the worst stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. I have a few Marine friends that have yeah. decent nightmares, for sure. Yeah. Did you, because of the thing that inspired you to sign up 9-11, being what it was, and then knowing one, one that the, it was
1: yeah, One of the bait, reasons.
0: The, having yeah. it be kind of a bait-and-switch with...
1: Oh, the Iraq War? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean... Yeah, you know, here's the thing... <laughs> There are plenty of problems with the way our country works. Sure. I think one of the biggest problems is the military-industrial complex and the connection it has to private corporations, right? Like, we spend an exorbitant amount of money on the military, and then 90%, if not more, of that money is going into the pockets of these American corporations. So you can see how there's there's a bit of, like, you know, there's some corruption happening. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Um, war is big business.
1: War is big business, you know. And after World War II, war was big business for a number of reasons. One was commerce, you know. It's just, it kind of helps the, the, the country. But military commerce is a different story. Like, like, you know, buying a bunch of soup and stuff because we have this military kind of thing, this military... Uh, Apparatus that, that helps us be efficient with how we're producing mass quantities of things is one thing. But uh, buying F-22 Raptors and building new aircraft carriers and new ships and uh, spending money on all this weaponry when the Pentagon isn't even ordering it, when the Pentagon says, no, we're good, we have all this stuff.
0: Many times over. Um,
1: yeah, when they don't even... When you know the the military officials say, we don't even need this stuff and they're getting it anyway... Obviously, they're doing this because they're taking our money, our taxpayer dollars, and they're moving it over to Halliburton, and they're moving it over to to, to um, North of Grumman, they're moving it over to Raytheon, because those are all American companies that are friends and have amazing, you know, these lobbyists. I mean, the fact that we have lobbyists in this country oh, and no other country in the world basically doesn't... I mean, it's like, hello, yeah. there's obviously a problem here. Big. Time. Why is that legal?
0: Legal bribery, yeah.
1: It's insane. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, the Iraq war was bull I mean, you know, I think any veteran is gonna tell you the Iraq war is bullshit. Um one
0: of my biggest problems with the military and and I have many friends who have served, you know, and my biggest problem is the fact that the military has no problem preparing people to be soldiers and to be military and then completely abandons them on the other side yeah and that disgusts me and i have a major issue with that because it's not a problem that's insurmountable and yet it's a problem that is grossly ignored
1: here's the thing i don't think they totally abandon us
0: well i mean there are veteran programs and all that stuff but it's it sort of feels like just enough the the problem well
1: here's the thing So I'm going to start, I'll tell you the story of the past 10 years of my life, which was, you know, I told you I joined the Navy because I wasn't going to get into NYU. I got into NYU, but only after I got into Columbia, and then I went to NYU from Columbia. Uh, Columbia was 100% paid for, like, the amount of grants after the GI Bill and the Yellow Ribbon Program, which is another military uh, grant that... The Yellow Ribbon Program is uh, VA money, government money and will, that will match whatever the school gives you. Mm-hmm. So they're incentivizing the school to give you this grant only for veterans and they'll match it dollar for dollar. So um, at Columbia I was like overflowing my account so I was literally being paid to go to an Ivy League school. On top of being paid to go to an Ivy League school, I was being paid to go to an Ivy League school again because I was getting paid $3,000 a month to go to school in New York City because they were paying me based on the cost of living of where the school was. You can't, I can't say, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to complain about that.
0: I feel like every veteran, that they should never have to pay a medical bill again. They should never have to pay for school again. Hell, they shouldn't have to pay for groceries or rent. They, do you know what i mean like i know that seems that's a little much it's not though yeah. it's not it's like take go- never
1: pay for anything again i mean fuck you should yeah you can you be the VA? Obby- i mean i
0: would be a lobbyist <laughs> for that because yeah. if you have this expectation that you're sending our men and women to go do these things hmm. and to be in a lot of ways superhuman
1: mm-hmm. right mm-hmm
0: I think the fact that we that there are I think homeless, it's a simpler. I think there, it's
1: a simpler. I think it's a simpler issue because, like, imagine the
0: that making that <laughs> happen.
1: Making, making, Imagine having to make that happen. But like, don't like, pay
0: for a couple stairs. Don't pay for a couple of these big. Well, that okay. So things, that's that's then, that's the
1: thing. Yeah. Right. So like we spend. Uh, tens of millions of dollars every time there's a there's a bill that where you know money gets moved over to the military we we spend tens of millions of dollars if not if not over 100 million dollars on shit we don't need so like that that you know that's hello so like save that money but like what i've found because the past eight years of my life with we are the mighty the, the military media brand where we do a lot of work with the va we basically make videos Um, And and sometimes TV specials and shows and stuff with with partnering with the Army, partnering with the VA, partnering with VSOs, Veteran Service Organizations. So I've interviewed hundreds. I mean, over the past eight years, I've interviewed hundreds of, of vets. I've learned so much more about the military over the past eight years than being in the military for six years. All, you know, when you're in the Navy, I was concentrated on the equilibrium balance equation of uranium 235 and like how much is, you know, how, how long is it going to take for us to get to rod point three? Like, you know, like, that's all I'm, I, I was concerned about nuclear physics. I wasn't concerned about the mission or like what we were doing or, you know, whatever. I was concerned about getting a, a, a plane off the deck. And that was about as close to military as my job got. Right. It was mostly about working in a power plant and then keeping my uniform and all that bullshit like that was too much of my day every day it was making sure my uniform was tight and all that. I think what it comes down to is veterans not knowing what's available to them. And I think that's like 70/30. Really? Six, 60 60/40 60, on like vet the system, right? Like I you know, a lot of vets it, this is that age-old question of like, where does, where does it become, your own responsibility to make sure you're good, you know, and how much do you need, you know, how much do we as the system, how much does the system need to need to make sh- need to reach out and help? Right? Some of
0: those folks are pretty broken. though. That's
1: the thing is like you know, for people that are, lock. I mean, I'm I'm writing four scripted short films right now for the va for the va mental health department uh the research part of of mental health uh because i mean this is an amazing thing to say out loud but like they have trusted me to write produce direct and make these four like 10 minute short films about um it with the hope that veterans see them and reach out for help before they do something to themselves um, and it's through the research department, so it's like they're gonna test it and they're gonna see if this is working And I'm working with these doctors to I mean, I'm getting notes on my scripts from doctors from medical pro- from uh, mental health professionals Which is interesting, you know, you know a lot of these guys and I'm, and I'm taking true stories I'm getting I'm getting like mental health transcripts from calls and 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 sessions and things that that veteran patients have, have offered and I'm basing these stories on reality and, you know, these, you know, there's one character that's like a recluse and can't leave and thinks he's a burden on his family and, all, you know, all these things. And it's one of the common denominators amongst most of us, even me, when you leave the military, is asking for help is not what you do. You know, when you're in the military, you're conditioned to make it work, to, to, to complete the mission to do at all costs to, to 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 get it done. You know, and weakness is death, right? Like you show weakness, you you and your and your battle buddies, your crew are dead. You can't show weakness. So, those things that you get you get con- conditioned, you know, like I was conditioned, you know, I didn't think a missile was going to come at me. I didn't think I was going to get blown up. I didn't think I was going to get shot but i was conditioned to think that if i made a mistake in the process of transferring the electric plant or starting up a a a generator that you can cause a steam explosion and uh you're not only gonna blow us all up you're gonna chernobyl the fucking this side of the planet (laughs) you know what i mean so it was like absolutely no mistakes any little mistake you know, you open the wrong valve and a little bit of water leaks out. You know, it's like any little mistake was like someone's gonna die. And they and they treat you as if you're like dereliction of duty. So to this day I still this is what I talk to my therapist about. I'm like, I still have these this conditioning of like any little mistake is death, right? So like my producer, like my my one of the guys that works with me, like does a you know, doesn't doesn't add up this these cells of the spreadsheet and we get reimbursed $357 less than we should have I'm like, I gotta like have an internal discussion with myself like easy now, nobody's gonna die because we lost $357 you know what I'm saying, it's like, just chill life's life's too short, life's too important to to freak out you know, about that, and that's been like a 10 year journey for me to like, not have that anxiety, not have that Kind of like uh, uh hyper awareness of mistakes but bo- going back to what you were saying about veterans needing more uh, I agree with you i th- I think especially combat veterans need the need the reach out you know and and there's there's so much available to them, right? Like the VA does I mean, if you if you are I mean I've got plenty of friends who are one hundred percent Service Connect disabled I mean I'm ten percent disabled, you know, so I get hundred and fifty seven dollars a month for the rest of my life. <laughs> and that's just because of my, you know, mild PTS from what I was just describing. You know, but but there's plenty of veterans. The problem is or or the the the, the, the trick, the the, the the hard part is that it's just like when you go and you have to get your, you know, you get a prescription filled and you had to pay out of pocket for whatever reason and you got to deal with your insurance company to get that reimbursement that you're due that's in the contract. They support, you know, they pay for that prescription but you got to deal with the bureaucracy of an insurance company or whatever. It's kind of like that. You, you got you gotta how to know how to get what you are owed and but that can be incredibly overwhelming of course i mean it's over you're right because it's overwhelming for me i hate it and i'm totally good i mean i do this this is kind of my job is to get what we you know like i'm a producer i need to make it work i need to make it happen so yeah guys that come out that that like are are, are lost of, of course it, it was with what's a, what's a big big emotional kind of like psyche problem is is that at, at the before any of this d- dealing with the bureaucracy and the phone calls and shit, before they can even get to that, they have to get over the emotional hurdle of just being able to ask for help, to know that yeah. it's okay to ask for help, to yeah. know that it's okay to get 150 or or 1500 or $2,500 a month for the rest of their lives, depending on what they're percentages they have to know that that's okay that they're not weak because they're doing that, that that the stigma of like someone's gonna die because they're asking for help or that they're going into a group therapy session or that they're going to see a therapist or that they're going to the VA because you know they have to get over they have to figure that out and and that's you know a lot of it is on on the vet you know and the community so like I think the, the VA is great I've met a lot of great people at the VA and they do a lot of great work but it's really important that vets like me and other veterans in the community are aware of this. And we're not just, I mean, most vets that I know, if not all vets, you know, we, we stay in this community for life. I mean, it's a lifelong brother-sisterhood thing. You know, you, you don't just leave it. It's not like, you know, I worked at Golden Sachs and I don't anymore. I'm gone. You know, it's like you, this is like a family that you've created. So it's like important for us veterans who are doing well and who are emotionally adjusted and, and, and cool to, to like keep an eye out for the ones that, that are, are in a tough place. And I, I'm incredibly fulfilled in the work that I do, like working on these on these videos and this, this creativity. I mean, I'm able to write scripts and get SAG actors to come perform and we make little movies because we're trying and the whole purpose of it, it's totally funded. And purpose. The purpose of it is to help veterans and to mitigate the numbers of veteran suicide and to I- inspire veterans to to get help and for them to know that it's available to them. Yeah, for free. You know, it's available to. It's out there for them. You know, there's plenty of stuff out there for us vets. They just need to know about it. They need to be okay with getting it, and they need to they need to like know that it's there for them. You know, that it needs to be offered to them.
0: One of my Marine friends who. Uh Basically, is the Marine equivalent of a Navy SEAL, right?
1: A recon Marine.
0: Yeah, and he basically said to me, very drunk one night, uh, the Marines made me a serial killer, but they didn't unmake me after they did what they needed. And I that will always stay with me.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, especially with that kind of thing. The, the Navy SEALs do an interesting thing. And I'm not sure... I don't know much about it. All I know is that part of the training to become a Navy SEAL is um, to train your brain to have a switch to be able to be a killer <laughs> yeah, and to not be a killer. yeah. So I guess the SEALs can just turn it off for good when they're done being a SEAL.
0: I think that's a personality thing. I read this really fascinating book called be- On Killing. Yeah, And it talked about how... Uh, in World War Two, for example, that the, the kill rate of, of people when they shot their weapons was quite low. And when Vietnam came around, they had to figure out how to get military folks who were at the front to, or who were in the, the bush, I guess, to be able to shoot to kill. Because the humanity of it, right, was still prevalent in people. And they had to remove the humanity in order for them to look at the enemy as a monster or as something to kill and then they brought in psychologists and psychiatrists to figure out the best way to do that and Mm -hmm. after that the kill ratios went way up
1: yeah it's interesting you know I I don't like thinking about it too long at a time but like you know we've been civilizations have been warring with themselves since the beginning yeah and we're not stopping anytime soon
0: and we're getting better at it and uh, the one thing about the drones, although that's,
1: that's a whole ethically, ethically, that's episode. just that's like a
0: whole other thing. But yeah. the idea that they've been able to remove the human element from being able to kill a lot of people.
1: Well, <laughs> this is this is another episode for you, and you should f- try to find an Air Force vet who was a drone operator. But mm. the problem with the drones is like they're not removing the human element 100%. What they're doing is... They're making it like a video game right or or it it inherently it's like a video game and instead of a 38 year old combat uh navy pilot you know like a top gun pilot dropping a bomb with like all of this work that he has to do or she has to get get there and drop and laser guide the thing and all this research and stuff now it's easier and now we can just send a drone but there's still a person Somebody on the other end who has, to, who has to release the weapons. And it could be a 22-year-old kid who, is ne- who hasn't built up the emotional um, experience yet of launching off aircraft carriers, flying into enemy territory, radars tracking him. You know, it's like there's all kinds of stuff that happens in your experience up into a, when you get into a position where you're flying an F-18 over, you know, an Afghan village and you got to take out a target, you know when you're a drone operator, fresh out of, you know, now you can just, oh, you know the you know all the equipment, you're in Utah, cool get into the thing, alright, you're going to go over there you're going to drop the bomb, alright, drop the bomb on that wedding
0: if, I don't know if you've ever read Ender's Game Orson Scott Card mm-hmm. phenomenal book, terrible movie but I, I think that that's why all these video games and all this stuff that that's so prevalent and so easily accessed, is because we are training this whole generation of people to not connect the human element to what it is they're doing.
1: Yeah, you're articulating the, inter- the intersection or the border between life and death. You know, you, you, it's, it's where war lives, right? It's where mm-hmm. combat lives. A- at the end of the day, you have to kill the enemy, you know what I'm saying? There's other there's other ways of doing it. You cut off the supply chain. There's I mean there's, you know there's, there's a hundred different ways of doing it. But at the end of, you know if you're a marine and you're in combat or you're a drone operator or you're you're a, you're a fighter pilot and you got to take out a target, you know, it's it's death, right? And going to, bringing this full circle back to your question of why I joined the Navy and and not any other branch, is because when I joined the Navy, and then when I knew I was going to be an engineer. I knew this was not going to be part of my job. Part of my job was not going to be hitting a button on a drone, dropping ordinance, or being in a situation where I was going to have to uh, kill someone. It's a lot to
0: ask of a person.
1: I mean, it's the most you can possibly ask of someone. is to be put into... Number one, be put into a situation where your life is on the line. Right? And then two, to be put in a situation where you're going to have to take someone else... Kill someone else. But, you know, this... This is a hard conversation to have when you think about who we're actually fighting these days. I don't know if it's harder or easier to talk about uh, with Vietnam or World War II, but these days it's like it's really interesting to think about because these days when like your Marine friends, our Marine friends are are in in country and they're fighting uh, ISIS or they're they're fighting. The Taliban, or they're fighting these, these, these factions, they, they have no, um, they've really fucked up uh, idea of, of life that the, our, the enemy does, right? They have a very skewed, just hard to relate to uh, outlook on, on the sanctity of life, mm. I mean, I guess you could say the same for kamikaze pilots, but, but like, it's like...
0: Strapping weaponry to children and sending them...
1: It's insane. Yeah, it is.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's, women, it's, there's,
1: there's, there's just absolutely no respect for life. I mean, even kamikaze... I had this crazy uh, argument with my dad. It was like the first conversation, argument, interaction. It's the first interaction I had with my dad where I felt like an adult. And I think I was like 19 Mm -hmm. and I was, I was like barely in the Navy and he, we were eating, (laughs) we were at a sushi restaurant in South Carolina. He like came to visit me. That's a great place to have sushi. (laughs) Not the best place, but you know, when you're in the military, you got to be where you got to be. So we're we're having a, we're having some when I mean, we're at the coast at least, mm-hmm. but like you know we're 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 having some sushi in the sushi restaurant in like the parking lot of a movie theater like they do in South Carolina, and I don't know how this started, but the argument began the debate began, and he's very he has a lot of pride about his dad, and his dad was a World War II pilot in the Marines, sure, and I was like. I love. I mean, we're at a sushi restaurant, and I'm like, I love Japanese culture. I love the Japanese people, Um, and even if you look at fighting them in World War II, they were a a respectful enemy. You know, we we had. I mean, it's nothing like these days where uh, our enemy takes civilian airplanes and rams them into civilian uh, office buildings, killing thousands of innocent people, barely any military, I mean, basically only police officers, like, I, I mean, I don't think any military people were killed. Right, they when, that when was the about Japan...
0: fear more than about anything, that was to his. Establish... But they
1: don't give a fuck about they... who they're killing, right? Yeah. The Japanese came over in a strategic attack, and they bombed Pearl Harbor Naval ships. Naval ships. It's a military installation. Of course, there were, there were you know, mothers and children and, and civilians who died, but they were bombing the ships. It was a strategic thing that they were doing. When you're at war, these things happen. It's a different game these days where it's like we've, you know, we're... we're Osama bin Laden came over here and literally just, just, just attacked civilians like it was just an attack on civilians, and he got all butthurt. I mean, he he got like he was he was offended because I was saying that the Japanese were at a, were at a higher level than than the Taliban, and I think he was he was upset because he thought of you know he thought that I was like a, like I was coming after his dad for for being the the you know the the for fighting the Japanese, but you know at the end of the day it's it's like there are rules to war <laughs> you know like we've been warring forever but there are like you know there's like a, a respect thing there and and the hardest thing about i mean vietnam was a tough war too vietnam was really bad but the the really tough part about the past well, I guess it's over now, thank God, but like, you know, the 20-year-long the war that we can call the OEF and OIF is that, you know, who, who are you fighting? You know, and what are we fighting? I mean, it's, it's tied into what are we fighting for? You know, we're fighting for the Afghan people, we're fighting for the Iraqi people, sure, but, like, is, is there, you know, you want to know what you're, that you're fighting for something that's going to actually last and be you know actually mean something and 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 not just go right back to the way it was before we got there mm-hmm. and it's you know i'm i'm not a huge history person but the little history i know about this it's like it's not you know, hello it, it, the russians try to do this shit that you know this is the, the middle east that that region has been tried to we, we've tried to other countries have tried to fix it for for many many years and it just kind of but what's fascinating to me is to like try to empathize because it I just hit a brick wall because I can empathize with pretty much anyone. I can I can empathize with a kamikaze pilot, you know, dying for my country because we are we are in, you know, I'm going to I'm going to help our country succeed. I mean, fuck you for helping the Nazis, but like, you know, at least it was like for country. You know, this is like a religion thing now, and it's like what religion because it's not the Muslim religion that says it's cool to have no. your kid blow him or herself up.
0: Yeah, it's not in there. And by the way, if for anybody it. that front. thinks that that... Yeah, exactly. Read the Quran. It's beautiful. And pound for pound, the Bible is far more
1: violent. FYI. Of course. Of course. You know, so it's like, where is this coming from? It, there can't be that many Timothy McVeighs over there. There can't be that many chemically fucked up in the brain religion
0: though the cultism of religion is a powerful force look at the middle ages the inquisition look at what Mm. history has done in the name of god whatever god they choose to to hide behind it's just
1: funny because i it's just it's crazy to me because there's, so, there's so many things I can empathize with. I feel like I'm, I, I, my, my capacity for empathy, I think, is pretty big. I think it's, over, it's, it's above average. But that's just one thing where I don't know if anybody can empathize with that.
0: It's tricky because when you look to something like World War II and look at kamikaze pilots, we have the benefit of being in a place now where that is so long ago and you can see in perspective
1: yeah
0: there's an argument to be had that from the taliban's perspective right that they think that they're in the right because this is their land this is their religion they've bastardized their religion but that in my humble opinion i probably now will have a fat mom (laughs) but whatever that 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 They do believe that they're in the right, just like every generation. Well, they
1: must believe they're in the right, of course. But like they're, you know, this is their country. It would be one thing if we were invading their country, like it's Russia invading Ukraine. But
0: look at our country. Look at our country and the theocracy that's building ammunition like crazy right now. Sure. Right? They're hiding. They're They're using control and manipulation and hiding behind a deity in order to do it. It's not really about the deity because I mean I've read the Bible a lot and this Jesus guy didn't do any of this shit and certainly did not preach any of this stuff. You know what I mean? The perspectives are there. That's why I look at some of the rhetoric of some of the people in power right now in this country, and I can see the parallel to these other countries that we think are mad for the way they treat women and children and others, quote-unquote,
1: we don't kill people here. You know? we, don't, we don't. We don't kill don't. our own people. We
0: do, but we do, but we don't. The people that have gone into, say, like, Pulse Nightclub, right? There there are one-offs, people who go, oh my gosh, I have been reading and believing manifestos and I think I have to go kill all the gay people or I'm reading yeah,
1: and a believing. It's cr- a crazy person. It's a
0: crazy person. Yeah,
1: but, but it happens in such big numbers. I mean, these are like cults, I guess. You, you could say they're like this is what my cults. this like is my ISIS argument. Is my,
0: this my argument is that that is a massive cult, right? It's it's bastardized a religion, mm-hmm. which you've read the Quran. I'm assuming I've read the Quran. It's a beautiful. It's well, it's beautiful, and <laughs> yeah. and it's it, there is there is a sanctity of life within it, just like yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. I feel like that that there is not a big difference. I, like, I think that humans like to think, oh, we're so different than that guy over there. He's a terrible person. He's running around murdering in the name of this, that, or the other. And I'm saying we have to look at ourselves as well sure. because we're running around doing the same thing. Yeah. That's my argument. And we've gone way off topic, but, <laughs> but it's an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah. It, it is interesting. I mean, I, I, I can't empathize with ISIS the same way I can't empathize with someone who takes their own life mm. because i not because i think you know not because i think the the person that's taking their own life is like i was just about to say not because they're wrong but like you know what i mean like they like they're they shouldn't do that i think they're wrong because they shouldn't do that because life is There's nothing else. I'm not a very religious person, right? Like, I... I like the idea of thinking that there's a life after life, a life after death. Um, You
0: mean, like, heaven or, like, reincarnation?
1: I don't know. Oh, okay. But I have no idea. None of us know.
0: Of course not.
1: But if we knew, then it wouldn't makes sense to know, right? You have to not know. There has to be mystery or else it's like, well, I'm just waiting to go and then you, everybody would suicide. But, you know, it's like... It, so I, I have faith in a higher power, right? Like, I think that... I think there's some meaning to life, right? Like, I don't think this is just some kind of, you know, primordial soup that somehow came... There has to be something before that. I mean, the Big Bang has to be for a reason. You know, there has to be some meaning to life. You know what I mean? But life is life, right? What what we know and what we can touch and what we can feel is life and it's each other, right? And it's living on this earth. And that is so precious. And, and even even beyond the preciousness of it, it's 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 that's all it is. That's all it is. That's all we. That's all we have is life, right? Like I,
0: I get that, but I also can see the point of somebody who wants dominion over their own self. I think, in general, medical suicide, for example, I I totally understand. And for those who
1: yeah, ending pain, sure. Ending
0: pain, yeah. But then, who's to say which pain is valid over which pain? The
1: person that's ending their own pain. Mm,
0: yeah, so I. It's it's a weird place in my brain. is where I when somebody takes their own life i think it's 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 sad and it's a tragedy and and i think it leaves there's that old saying god only cries for the living that it it leaves those behind in a very bad place but i also can see the point of somebody saying i am in pain i can't do this anymore and i'm gonna go i get that wanting that dominion over one's own mind and body and soul I get it. I, I don't just, know if I agree with it. I, I don't know if I myself could to take that step. But I can also kind of see it, understand it.
1: I've never been in that situation, right? Like, I've never been so distraught that I feel like that's an option.
0: You're so lucky. Think mo- lucky I think most of, most
1: of us are, right? I, think, I, think, most, I like to think most of us are in that situation where we value life.
0: But valuing of life, to me, is different than... I, I think that that's a separate thing. I think you can value life and still want to not be on the planet anymore. I think those two things aren't mutually exclusive.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. You value <laughs> life but want to kill yourself. Really? Because
0: you can value what it is but still not want to be here. Well,
1: value your own life. Right? I mean, to me, to me that's what it is. To me, life is your own life. The idea of life. I mean, this is weird. You know, this is this is getting into an interesting conversation because, like, I, you know, I often, I mean, I often think about having a kid, and like, it feels like the majority of people in this world, and it feels like it's it's obvious that the the, the majority of the people in this world live to have kids, right? Like, they have kids. Most people have kids, and they would die for their kids right? I'm gonna die for my kid maybe that happens after you have the kid because I can't imagine myself I mean I would because I would feel like a dick if I didn't like if my kid was like if you know, I could save my kid's life by dying I would because I would feel like a dick to have my kid die that would be a shitty reason to die so I don't feel like a dick but like you know it's like I, I don't feel the the impetus of it and maybe you only get you only get that feeling when you have the kid but I'm not you know this is I'm in the point of my life right now where where I'm like am I gonna have a fucking kid or not you know what I mean and my mom is like are you gonna have a fucking kid or not you know so it's like but I have no drive to you know and I think it's tied into this feeling of not really feeling like I have that same kind of outlook on life that most people do, where they like live for their kids, mm. where they like or live, live
0: through their kids—it's a it's hyper extension of oneself. It is where we get mm. to be a god.
1: Mm. Interesting. Yeah.
0: We create a being, and
1: yeah, I never thought about it like that. Maybe that's why I don't like it because I don't like having that much control over shit. It just doesn't feel right, you know. It doesn't feel like i'm a collaborative person you know what i mean i guess you collaborate with one other person to have a kid but not like,
0: necessarily but yeah sure you can there are a lot of people that raise a child
1: raise a child sure but you need something from somebody else physiologically to right. have it done right right you know my mom raised me basically by herself sure yeah. yeah until my stepdad came along
0: but look at how the world treats children pretty shitty still mm. we've evolved so far but we will never be an evolved species until we treat children and animals better. And I'm not saying, I'm not a vegan. I eat animals, but uh, but I have a respect for the animals I eat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I I think that as long as there is an abuse of power of those that are weak or weaker or the underdog or, you know, what have you, we we will suffer as a as a race as a species
1: my biggest um my biggest response to that is um the education thing so like I I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about um going through a lot of tough times as a kid and like making it making it work for myself I was never given anything and don't put me in a room of minorities and having that conversation with the way I look. But like, it's true. I mean, I grew up in a lot of minority communities, and I go went through a lot of shitty fucking public schools, and I wasn't given any attention.
0: Technically, you're half Turkish. That makes you.
1: Feel like <laughs> I'm a quarter Turkish. <laughs> and I, that you asked me before. Why? Why? Like, I grab onto that shit. I, I mean, I lived my child I mean, I went to the food bank, I was on the food line, I fucking, you know, my, my dad was a lunatic, like, I you know, I went through a lot of shit, and then my mom remarried my stepdad and I was a, in a very affluent community, and I got fucking picked on by rich black kids and rich white kids, and you know, I've lived all over the different corners of the money universe money
0: supersedes race always Yeah, it's the fucking money, but
1: yeah. the Economics problem yeah. always And it always supersedes. becomes this kind of like muddying, you know, it muddies the discussion where it's like, yeah, we're fucking bad on the minorities, whatever, but like, the the community of minorities live in that community and they haven't been able to get out of that one area that everybody's being oppressive to because the fuck there's no school that's good over there that's right and like if you can make the charter school pull more people from that place and move it over there then maybe we're making some progress it's
0: economic but
1: it's yeah it's it, it has nothing to do with the amount of melanin in someone's fucking skin it has to do where they grow up it just happens to be that all those people growing up over there are black or or, or latino or whatever I happen to be the kid who kind of came to that school because we were living in the cheapest fucking place in town because we had no money. Because when you're an out-of-work actor and your dad works at the airport, you live in Van Nuys. That's where you fucking live. So I experienced all different corners and all different, you know, ways of people, you know? And I think, number one, it makes me tremendously informed as to, like, who people are in this country and... And it, it gives me empathy for, for, for people, generally. And then it also, I have to say, it gives me a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because I had to work very hard to get to where I am. I wasn't given anything. I mean, the only, the only entity that has given me anything is the military, is the government for 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 what for six years of my life.
0: Yeah, I get know? that, but uh, there's also the argument that because you don't have a lot of melanin in your skin that you still have a leg up even though you didn't...
1: I'm sure that... Do so you know what I mean? Like that, you, that, that argument. Give you, I'll give you an example. I get out of speeding tickets. I never have to think that my life is in danger when exactly. I get pulled over. Yeah. There's all kinds of little things like sure. that where, of course, I, I, I don't... I don't have to deal with something because I'm white, right? Being a white veteran is like ding, 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 ding. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, it's like fucking come on, like cops aren't gonna do anything to me, you know what I mean so it's like, yes, there's definitely things like that, but when it comes to like where I've gotten the only the only like leg up that i that I've been given is is that i'm I'm a vet, you know what I'm saying, and I'm really. And, and and happy that I made that decision to be a veteran because it almost gives me minority status. I mean in a way it does, in a way it, it technically does, you know but like to, to cut myself out from the rest of the vanilla ass white dudes in, in America, you know, and not to say that I'm vanilla, but, but but you know like like to just set myself apart for that to, to, to allow someone to say, oh, well, let's, okay, let's give this person a little more of a shot b- because he's done this, you know, or because he's, he or she is different than other people or because maybe he or she had a tougher time uh, going th- g- getting to where they got, it, you know? Uh, when you look at... This is the thing for me. When you look at me or you, you look at me on the surface, you don't know that I've had a really tough time. It's a flip side thing, right? Where like being white, nobody ever fucking talks about this, but like being white and having a tougher childhood and scraping and fucking not having a good education, having to go through 13 schools before high school and having a dad who's got drug and alcohol problems and having these things. Nobody's going to say, you know, no, nobody's going to look at me and look at my skin color or look at my, my race and, and say, he's had that, those things, you know? Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's fair. At the end of the day, it's fair because I don't want someone to, to hand, give me a handout for something like that. I'm you, fine with that. But them. you
0: will always have a leg up because of how you present take econ- nobody knows the economic level of anyone at first glance unless they're presenting like uh, you know
1: yeah they're a hobo or yeah or, like, I <laughs> was like I was like are
0: hobos like can you say hobos still I don't even know but uh home uh <laughs> unho- unhoused, unhoused. but uh, to me a hobo is like the guy from the 1930s with the little stick yeah, and yeah. the sack I don't. You know, probably that's a navy cut yeah exactly <laughs> um it is an interesting conversation, but, you know, it comes down to much of of the issues in this country. We have a caste system in this country, and anyone that denies that isn't paying attention. And that says, you know, I'm a capitalist. Sure, of course I am. Do I want to make some money and have a roof over my head and be able to eat and have insurance and, you know, all that kind of stuff? Hmm. Yeah. Am I part of a system? Yeah. Is that system broken as fuck? Yes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. I think I think it's. I mean, I can tell you from going to school in L.A. in New York City, in New Jersey, in Wilmington, North Carolina, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in Boca Raton, Florida, Toronto, Canada, and Chicago that the public school system in this country is the root of the problem. Oh,
0: it's terrible
1: not enough our, of our of our tax dollars go to
0: I think that's intentional I have a whole thing about that too we could talk for hours about all this it's stuff just not, they don't have the lobbyists
1: <laughs> you know it's like I mean it's also much easier to
0: control a populace who's not very bright or who's not been educated yeah. you know and I don't think that's I don't think that's crazy to think that the powers that be are like hmm <laughs> you know how do we control things a little, a little bit better? It's a little
1: crazy. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong. It's a, it's a little like,
0: conspiracy theorist, yeah. of course. But I, I think it's...
1: Because look, I mean, I'm a
0: product of public school education. It sucked. I hated it. And uh, it's broken.
1: But here's the thing, too. Public school, in all of those places but one. There was one standout that was different than the rest. And that was Bergen County, New Jersey. Because the taxes are insane and they've done something to make sure that that's i mean that when i graduated i told you i had to join the navy because i wasn't getting into NYU but that same year like three kids out of my graduating class went to harvard
0: i have an it, ex who was is from new jersey and the education that he received in public school
1: these were public schools yeah
0: incredible he studied latin mathematics science they're they're
1: like connected art. to the to like Columbia and like other great schools in that in that area and like maybe other Ivy League schools and they like know what the mm-hmm. colleges are looking for that that's a college prep high school like they know how to get these kids into and college and people love to talk shit about New Jersey but They don't fucking know. It's the Garden State (laughs) for a reason. Uh, Yeah, it's like they've just been driving on the New Jersey turnpike. I mean, there's a reason why, like, half the fucking celebrities that, like, work out of New York City live in New Jersey. Right. Um, Like, you know, Chris Rock, like, came by the movie theater all the time. You know, it's like, it was a... And there's no... The thing is, is that there's no private schools in that area. There's one. It's Bergen Catholic. It's one Catholic high school in that whole county, basically, because... There's no need for a private yeah, the public school schools because, are the, exceptional, because sure. the taxes are astronomical, and you have a lot of rich people mm-hmm. with a, paying a lot of property taxes on these ridiculous homes. And then you know, I mean, it, it's the money. I mean, it's all about the money, right? Like that's that's where that's economics. I always
0: say it's economics.
1: But the problem with that is that Chris Rock and three other families were all, the only three f- black families in the community, right. you know, so like all of the rest of them are in Hackensack and in Trenton and in Newark, you know, where the schools are terrible and then they're just going to stay there because mm-hmm. the schools are terrible so they're not going to get into a good school mm-hmm. and like, you know, they're going to join the military and maybe maybe break out, right, and like go I mean, I, I went to Columbia not because I was I finally got it into a system of that high school because I was still reeling from, you know, I think undiagnosed ADHD, to tell you the truth, for my entire childhood. But, like, I finally, I think I joined the Navy because I just saw it as the best option for me, and that's where I actually was able to grow and, like, get to a place where, like, you know, I was able to get into Columbia and NYU and... and, and really kind of meet my potential. Yeah. But it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened without the navy.
0: Well, let's talk about we are the mighty. Sure. How did that come to be in your life?
1: So, I graduated NYU in 2013 and I oddly enough, like I was like working in the, as a like a coordinator for a commercial director and these other random things and I Oddly enough, started teaching acting at NYU. I like was producing and directing and like teaching editing to actors and doing this like you know holistic filmmaking thing for these NYU acting students at this place called Stone Street, which is a is a studio. Is one of the studios that they send their their senior year drama students to. So funny little aside is that like I had to. I was 25 years old or something, and I had, I was literally the guy on the tr- the name on the transcript of these. NYU students, I had to give them grades, which was bizarre. I was like, "What the fuck, Professor augie Like, it's like so strange. I didn't really like it. <laughs> it didn't feel right for me. So, but like in while I was at Stone Street, like teaching, um, I met a guy named David Gale, who is a Hollywood producer who ran MTV Films for twenty years. Uh, produced election and all the jackass movies and beavis and butthead and all you know all these these mtv film films movies and he left mtv and was inspired by this thing that zach galifianakis was doing where he was like teaching comedy to veterans david is not a vet but his dad was was in world war ii um and and he was like this is an interesting thing like he was inspired by this thing that galifianakis was doing and he saw some kind of zeitgeist coming and David's great about this he, he sees he sees like trends you know he did the same thing with election and, and you know the movie election and he would see like how something's going to actually be popular before it's popular uh, David tells this great story about uh, getting the, the Twilight script and he loved it and he pitched it to Van Toffler, the president of MTV and all the people at MTV Films, and they passed on it. They passed on Twilight. He loves telling that story because then Twilight becomes this huge, insane franchise. So he saw this thing happening with the military community and he was like, Okay, this is there's some power here, but it's also there's some you know this is a capitalistic venture like you know there's also some some money to be made because this is this is a community that when you when you when you aggregate the the family members and the people who the loved ones of the military and veteran community I mean it's you know it's three quarters of the country right so like I mean what other community is that large so he saw something happening here and he wanted to start a media company like like situated within this community and he started we are the mighty in 2014 right at that time when he was like researching um, you know trying to meet as many veterans as possible and try to like you know get into the space um, my friend from Colombia who was the the leader of the military veterans Association at Columbia he was going off to work at Google so David found him somehow, and they had a meeting for coffee in Midtown Manhattan. And Rich uh, at Columbia called me, and he's like, "Hey, I'm meeting this Hollywood producer. Uh, I know you, you know you're like the film guy. I thought you know you want to come like to this meeting with me and him because he wants to talk about being a vet and all this stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds great. That's cool." So Rich invites me to this meeting, and I show up, and Rich calls, and he's like, "I." Uh, I have this dentist appointment. It's going long. So he didn't even come to the meeting. He, like, had his dentist appointment ran long. So I'm with David Gale. I meet David in this coffee shop. He's, he's like, a tremendously nice guy. He's very warm, uh, very down-to-earth. He went to NYU Law School, so we had that kind of thing to talk about. You know, and he's from New York. So we spent, like, three hours just kind of getting to know each other in that coffee shop. Long story short... uh, cut to a, a couple months later and he calls me and he's like you should come to We Are The Mighty. You should come help us start this business. Um,
0: Explain is, what We Are The Mighty is.
1: Yeah, so We Are The Mighty is a is a media brand for and about the military community. So uh, it's a website. We have a social media following of a couple million people. Um, we produce anything from broadcast commercials to digital spots to digital series to television to, you know, things on, like, Quibi and the Roku channel, Um, and it's all situated within the military and veteran community, so um, we work with the VA a lot to make, you know, for lack of a better term, PSAs, but when I produce PSAs, I try to make them cinematic and, like, you know, like they're actually entertaining in some shape or form. Um, and, uh, we, we do a lot of work for, you know, for cause, but we also are a company just like MTV was a company where we're trying to be a brand. We're trying to stand for something cool and we're, we're trying to inform, but we're also trying to entertain people. Um, so it's a, it's a cool place to work. It's a, it's a cool intersection of my film and performance and and storytelling background with the military background and, you know, our offices, Underneath the Hollywood sign in Hollywood, so we kind of call ourselves the cross section of the military community and the Hollywood community. Every ever so often, we'll actually consult with bigger Hollywood movies or TV shows, like we did it with. Um, uh, <laughs> we did it for "Thank You for Your Service," which is a movie with Miles Teller. We we like consulted on the script and on the authenticity of what they were doing.
0: Did you work with Maverick?
1: We did. So most of what we do. Uh, at We Are the Mighty with the military movies is marketing. So once the movie comes out, we help them build a build a marketing plan. Sometimes we produce content, video content. We'll put articles on the website. That movie
0: was so good. It was good.
1: It was better than I thought it was going to be. I loved it. But for Maverick, we, we set up a screening on the Intrepid uh, um, aircraft carrier. It's a defunct museum aircraft carrier in new york city we set up a screening for like 300 vets and and people in the community to come watch uh top gun maverick before it came out and you know we film it and do we did a couple of different video ideas uh for that event you know we're at the premiere we do a couple of little pieces at the premiere the red carpet all that stuff uh one of our guys Ryland's dad was Worked on the original Top Gun with Tom Cruise. So that was a nice little like connection that they had talking about that. You know, it's little things like that to like connect a movie that has authenticity that, you know, we're if there's a usually these days, Hollywood's pretty good about making movies that are authentic about the military community. It used to be where like, you know, it's just ridiculous. Like they were just using they didn't do any research. They didn't have a mili- like now you have to have a military advisor on set sometimes even in the writer's room like they they you know a good filmmaker good producers are going to want to make sure it's authentic to whatever story they're telling they ones want just like you know these days at least
0: how much of the of we are the mighty works with the military to uh, this is something i've always wondered when i'm watching a movie that is pro military like maverick or you know what whatever um yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think of all the military movies I've seen, I've seen so many.
1: 12 Strong, Yeah, that, Hunter Killer.
0: How many of those are being funded in part by the military in order to... Zero. Oh, okay. I always Zero. wondered that. I always wondered if the military kind of says, Oh, here's a couple million dollars to make us no. look good.
1: <laughs> no, what they do is they give you access. The studio system doesn't need any more money. They, they For Top Gun Maverick, that was like a $200 million movie or something. They're, they're, they're fine. Um what they need though, is they need a fucking aircraft carrier. <laughs> you can't build one. I, you know, it's cost like 13 billion dollars to build an aircraft carrier. So like it's like you know, it's all access. It's about access. So like it, it, what they will give you is access to the aircraft carrier and take money from you, but not at a prohibitive rate, right? So like they'll, they'll take a fee, which is like pretty like pretty easy to, to, to pay for. But at the end of the day, it's really about the access that they give you. And they're only going to give you the access if they believe in what you're doing. So what what happens here, and I've been through this process as a producer myself, is that you have to submit your project to the Hollywood Public Affairs Office of whatever, for Top Gun, it was the Navy, for whatever branch, every branch has a Hollywood Public Affairs Office. And if you I mean technically they, they try to tell you that you're 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 supposed to, like you're you're required to do this if you have something that's going on television or in the movies mm-hmm. or something that's to the to, to the broad audience that is that is about something in the military, you're like supposed to, to, to put it through them and they're supposed to approve it or deny no it. No matter what. No matter what. Oh, interesting. I mean obviously you can do whatever you want. What about and the last Starfighter? <laughs> I didn't see that one.
0: I wonder if they, that's from the eighties, I think, and it's about fighting battles in space. I wonder if Space Force would now be like,
1: You better <laughs> They're gonna retroactive the fucking <laughs> But but uh certainly if you want any access or you want any support from the military itself or like, you know, most of my career for the past ten years has been documentary, so obviously I need support. So we made a we made a show about Army boot camp, so obviously we needed to be there. We needed to be embedded with them. We needed to be, you know, we're not journalists. We're not, we're not like we don't have that kind of uh, um, the the card that we can pull that says you have to. We're journalists. You have to let us show what this is. It's journalistic uh, uh, access. We're not that. We're making we're making stuff for profit. We're making creative stuff here. So what the military does to to check the you know checks and balances that they do is they they want to know you know, that you're telling a story that's in service to what their, what their, uh, their messaging is, Uh, that you're not, you know, trying to do some kind of like gotcha thing against the military and and show them in a bad light, Uh, and that it serves their, their mission in some way. Uh, and one of the, it's funny, one of the check boxes, one of the requirements is that it is going to have big distribution. <laughs> so they're not going to support anybody. They're, they're only going to support the things that, I mean, I got, I've gotten denied plenty of times because stuff is going to digital stuff is going to like app based Kind of like you know uh, videos that, that you're watching on your phone.
0: That's not big enough for them.
1: It's not. not. It's not. They they need they need like they're too busy dealing with the Top Gun Mavericks and the Michael Bay movies and the you know the stuff where they're you know. But what they do is once they once they know that they're going to get a lot. of... I mean, Top Gun Maverick, is a perfect example of why the the Navy Hollywood office exists. With how why they exist. Why there as a whole you know command of people that are paid every day to do the job that they do is because when a Top Gun Maverick movie comes out, it's a fucking huge recruiting video.
0: Absolutely.
1: I mean, it's like, I mean, we did a video no ourselves. I
0: was ready to join that's, up. That's it. Was so one watching. of the videos,
1: <laughs> yeah, of the videos yeah. we got paid by Paramount <laughs> to make for marketing Top Gun Maverick was a little mini documentary about this guy. We sent him to the, the screening, the, the screening that we put on in New York on The Intrepid. He's from Oregon or something, but he joined the Navy because of the original top gun. Mm. That's why he did it. Mm-hmm. And he tells us that story, and he's like watching the movie and he's touring all the all the planes on the it's like it's a thing, you know so that that's a big that's a big thing. So no, they don't the 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 military doesn't pay the studios to do this stuff, but the stu- it's more of the other way around. The studios need stuff from the military. Right. Uh, and they only get it if there's a collaboration there. I've
0: always wondered that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So I perused wearethemighty.com. It's it's a cool site. I, I liked all. Well, I liked it because I'm I like learning about history. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of historical stuff yeah. in there that I thought was fascinating. Uh, it seems like it also doesn't take itself too seriously, no, because there's a lot of funny stuff in there. We the means, we're sort of like I,
1: I sort of say sometimes the webs the website is sort of separate from what I do because there's not a lot of video on the website. Um, a lot of our video goes to YouTube or goes to Facebook or goes to TV or goes to somewhere else. But but um, the website is I like the website because it is uh, irreverent. You know we're not po- political. We're not you know we're not trying to to tell like the the hardcore stories of what's going on right now and like this is fucked up check this out it's like we were in the military we're serving people that are interested in this community and that's who we are i mean if you're going to be you know the biggest thing about guys who are in combat or who have had to go through the the shittiest part of 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 this of this life is that you make jokes man you know you you can't take it too seriously you got to i mean the Military humor can get really dark. Yeah. But but like it's it's you have to be able to to laugh about shit. And that that's where like the like the stand-up comedian and the military person overlap. It's like, you know, the best comedy is about shit that's the hardest the to darkest, get through. The darkest yeah. the
0: hardest stuff. Yeah. It comes
1: from the hardest stuff, and yeah. that's the best way that's the only way to get through some of the darkest times in our lives. Is, is to laugh about it. Is to to make fun of it. You know. Is to is to to. You, you can't you can't take it too seriously.
0: There's actually a psychological default that happens in the brain under immense stress. That like if you're at a funeral and you start giggling and you start laughing uncontrollably, that's an actual thing that the brain does to protect you from the trauma of it or the pain of it. Right.
1: Right. We have to remember to laugh. Mm, absolutely. You know. Because there's, there's a lot of fucked up shit in the world,
0: God.
1: you know, and and if you just if you just kind of like, if you're concerning yourself with all that fucked up shit on face on its face value, and you're not making a joke out of it, or you're you're not kind of laughing at all, you know, la- the absurdity it of it bat, all,
0: yeah,
1: la- yeah, or, or like you know, just kind of remembering to laugh about it, remembering to to laugh, then you can get caught up in just being caught up in pain your whole life, and yeah. that's no way to live, yeah.
0: I agree. You know? Augie, how can people find you and find... We've talked about wearethemighty.com, but how can people find you? If If you want to find me,
1: you can go to augustdanelle.com. Spell that for folks. August like the month, and Danelle is spelled D-A-N-N-E-H-L. The H will always trip people up. Mm. The H trips me up sometimes. (laughs) Um, augustdanelle.com. Chef August thirty seven is my Instagram.
0: Are you a big chef, or is that just a random thing
1: that you? (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing. So your episode on me is going to be like four hours long because like there's too many things. I do too many fucking things. I love that. I'm a master (laughs) of none. So I do cook. I've. I I like. This can be the the part two of this. Are you a good chef? I'm okay. Because your
0: Instagram posts, they look pretty delicious.
1: So the, I mean, the Food Network thought I was good enough to to compete as one of the ten best home cooks in the country. So that was like a top chef, basically for for, for home cooks was that show. Um, and then I've cooked with Lydia Bastianich. That is. She's good. like uh, she's like a newer. She's a live Julia Child. Like she's on PBS. Um, the live julia child is an awesome way to describe she's somebody a, she's an alive julia child she's living uh but it, if you if you look her up she's all i mean she's she is the julia child of pbs of these days right yeah. like she is all over pbs and 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 she has a big following and she oh you know who i'll, I'll tell you why you know who lydia Bastianich is she owns Italy. you don't know what Italy is
0: I have no idea what so right is.
1: down the block here in West LA in, in Century City is a, a Italian mecca of of a, like grocery store
0: oh cool um,
1: restaurant pizzeria it's it's like Disneyland it's like Italian Disneyland for food okay it's insane and it started in New York and, and there's one in LA now I think there's one kind. there's they're all over the country now uh, it's become a huge thing but like you know mario batali is sort of in her kind of world and um her son john i, I don't i can't think of what his first name is but Bastianich is like the have you heard of master chef on fox
0: i mean i'm i
1: so like the gordon ramsey show yeah, where yeah, he's yeah. like sure. yelling at people yeah, the <laughs> sure. whole time one of the other one of his other minion people is this bald guy Bastianich. <laughs> it's lydia's son Um, so she's kind of like this food personality, but yeah, I cook, I've never really cooked in a restaurant. Um, so the, the, the debate about what a chef, what the word chef actually means is interesting. I say a chef is anybody who's paid to cook with creative prowess. You know, if you, if you're, if you're being paid to cook creatively, you're a chef. You're not a chef. If you cook at the Olive Garden, you're a cook because you're not using creativity and most of the time I'm not a chef because I'm cooking creatively but I'm not being paid to do it so I think a chef is someone who has both who's like it's their profession and they're creative Mm -hmm. you know and if you look at the French kind of like because the French have a very stringent breakdown of what it is in the kitchen and there's the the head chef I mean there's the, there's the executive chef then there's the sous chef then there's the chef de cuisine who runs the kitchen or the sous chefs actually sue to the chef de cuisine and then there's at a certain point it becomes cooks you know they're not called chefs anymore like the line cook you know the prep cook um, you know so like in that world it's like I think once the creativity or the and it's all very military the, the, the French brigade the French brigade is very military it all comes from Napoleon's army Fascinating. There's so much n- n- French army in uh, c- uh, classically French high-end uh, kitchens. Hmm. It's called the French brigade. Brigade is a military word.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating.
1: Everybody should watch um, the Bear on on. Hulu. I've heard that. That's great. It's very cool. It's very cool. It's very very chefy. If you're in, if you're like into like chef stuff and like kitchens and shit, the Bear is awesome.
0: I like eating very much. And I make the best mac and cheese in the world.
1: In the world?
0: (laughs) I don't know. I'm just giving myself that.
1: How do you make your mac and cheese?
0: Uh, It's got a lot of different kinds of cheeses uh, and it's very kitchen sink. I throw in all sorts of
1: vegetables. How do you make it? How do you start it? You start with the sauce? Uh,
0: I start by the I start by steaming the vegetables.
1: Vegetables, okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Lots of different kinds of vegetables Mm -hmm. and then I make the pasta and then I add in tons of different, like three or four different kinds of cheese, depending on who eating. What do you, what eating. do
1: you, do you make a, do you make a cheese sauce or you just I add shredded cheese I'm to I'm adding your pasta. different
0: kinds of cheese- cheeses, yeah, okay. I have all the different kinds of cheeses, and then depending on who's eating and what their dietary restrictions are. But there's are, no
1: butter, there's no milk, there's no uh, there's flour. Butter. There's
0: butter, uh, I use, I use oat milk, which I know mean, probably horrifies mm. people, but mm. I don't usually have regular right milk. Um,
1: but you don't make a roux? You don't make a roux and then add it. I mean, a cheese kind sauce. of a little
0: bit, like I that. guess, because of uh, so the pasta, then the butter, and then I add uh, spices, and then I start with the different kinds of cheeses. I generally add. Nobody wants to hear all this. I generally so you're add. Edit it, right. Uh, yeah, I generally add. Um, <laughs> Just
1: cut, like, How do you make your macaroni pi- and <laughs> cheese? Cut to the next. thing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I add sour cream and I do sour some, cream. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. have uh, jalapeno juice. I do some balsamic in there. Jesus. I mean, it's.
1: Balsamic and jalapeno juice. so good. Okay. It's so
0: good. Um, and if right. if I feel really fancy, I might bake it with um, breadcrumbs. I'm celiac, so I have to, mm. you know, accommodate that. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. All right. So, wearethemighty.com, your Instagram, your
1: website.
0: Chef webs-
1: August 37.
0: Chef 37. Chef, Chef August on- 37. 37 on Instagram. Uh, your own website.
1: AugustDonelle.com
0: anything else any other ways to find you i mean
1: there's plenty of other ways but they're less sexy like you can find me on linkedin
0: Ooh, you can sexy find,
1: find me on facebook you can find me on it might be so others. you're
0: kind of all over the place i'll put links for everything sure augie this has been a great conversation
1: i think I, hey this has been awesome
0: i've really enjoyed it and i appreciate that you're willing to go in all the different tangents with me um
1: that's how I live my life.
0: We covered a lot of subjects that I find quite fascinating. History, military, uh, veteran affairs, uh, all this stuff. Macaroni Food, and cheese. Macaroni and cheese. We, so didn't even talk, we,
1: we didn't even go down the Broadway route. We didn't go down. like There's all yeah, kinds of other routes. Yeah, you've had
0: quite a life, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's, it's mm. I I really consider myself a renaissance man. Like I, I, I And I, I really value that. I, I love to be able to live in the different worlds of broadway and hollywood and the military and professional kitchens and and television cooking like it's everything's got its own kind of little flavor you know Mm -hmm. and uh
0: do you have a favorite broadway show
1: hamilton hamilton is so good hamilton is next level my best friend
0: ellen took me to see that in tennessee in nashville mm -hmm. and i cried it was so good it's
1: it's next level shit like like i my, my stepbrother was in it he was king george Ah, such a great character! Yeah, and he's hilarious. Alexander's hilarious, so he was he was great in it. But it's like, I've seen, I've I've easily seen over a hundred Broadway shows in my life from the pit, from the the seats, from backstage, and to tell you the truth, to be frank with you, I'm not a huge fan generally of Broadway like I am a filmmaker for a reason There's, Broadway has this spectacle about it that it's the same reason why I can't really get into like old school Hollywood movies you know like ha yeah, and the music swells, and it's like I, I like, I like movies that I can relate to, you know, and that's the kind of filmmaker I try to be, stuff that can relate to people. You can feel it in your own day-to-day, like, you know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to make some kind of fucking crazy spectacle about something. Um, I love Evita, even though it's a spectacle, because, of I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber music is, is great. It, it's kind of rocky, it, you know, it's like it, it, you can feel the, the rhythm, uh, also I'm biased because my mom was a Vita, but like, you know, it, it's it, Broadway musicals for the most part. It's just not, I'm not really, I have spent my life in them. It's not something that
0: you can just you say know, cats is your favorite. Cats the
1: <laughs> worst, but, but <laughs> Hamilton, you know, he's able to do something and he did, he does it with, um, within the Heights too. Lynn is able to do something. That is, it's next level. I mean, he he's able to. He's a
0: genius. He, like he, I know people throw that word around. But yeah,
1: he's you he, know he's he's something else. He's, he's something a else. Genius. He's yeah. a, he's not good as an actor. <laughs> he's not he's not. He doesn't have a very good voice, but he is an amazing visionary, right? Because he's not only doing something new, which is he's certainly doing something new, uh, to the nth degree, but he's paying homage to Sondheim. He's paying homage to Hammerstein. He's paying homage. To, to, to the to the people who, who've come before him while still doing something so novel and something so uh um, next level it's something that's so kind of like uh, new but still couching it here and there this is why my, my mom and my stepdad called me after they saw um, the show very early on before it even got really much much press I mean they might have saw it at, at the um, uh, Shakespeare in the park they might have seen it when they were still doing it at the at the public but but they were like jazzed up about it and and my mom and stepdad don't they're not hip-hop people they're not like you know they they, they couldn't name you a tupac song you know what I mean but they were so inspired by it because it it, it grabbed them because it was so important and so good but it was also they loved the fact and um, Paul, was a very very i mean paul and steve steven sondheim were, were you know they were very close friends um and you know very serious about the music very serious about the the format of everything you know uh, my stepdad wouldn't be the first person 85 years old he wouldn't be the first person to be like oh yeah rap in a, in a musical that sounds great you know it's like he's kind of a traditionalist so the fact that he was he was inspired by it is a big deal and it was because it wasn't just someone going out. It, it wasn't as good as, as, good as um, uh, Book of Mormon is.
0: That's great. It's
1: still just kind of like we're doing our own thing. What Lin is able to do is he's able to do something with, with, that's fresh and what's interesting and di- so different, but still has tenants from old school Broadway which does have very kind of stringent things, just like a French kitchen. It has like these, these, these kind of tenants that we want in a, in, a, in a traditional Broadway show. And he was able to keep that kind of shit. And I think that's why it really grabbed people like my mom and my dad, and obviously so many other people who don't even, don't even go to Broadway shows half the time. You know? Yeah,
0: I really uh, struck a chord, absolutely. It's funny because I've been watching some old school sitcoms and mm. he shows up. In a lot of these sitcoms, these little bit characters. And every once Who in a while. Lynn. In old sitcoms? Yeah, like in uh, like How I Met Your Mother. Or oh, I never
1: knew he was yeah, acting in that show, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or
0: um, uh, Modern Family. Or, you know, in these little characters. But it was funny because in How I Met Your Mother, he uh, actually, there's a whole. Episode of him doing this sort of freestyle rap, and I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Nobody knew who that guy was going to become, right? And what he was going to create. But here he was dipping his toe in his possibilities, right. and it's so it was neat to see that reflecting back on history of this guy who's like, I'm, I'm going to do something that's going to blow all of you away in yeah. such a humongous way.
1: Yeah, he, he really, he really kind of bet. But the house, like he, mm. he, he, he stayed true to himself and it paid off and that's yeah. very inspiring and yeah. awesome to see. Like he, you know, he did it with In the Heights too. In the Heights is, is amazing as well. It, it's a little more, uh, um, linear as far as the story about Washington Heights, where he came, where he came from. and It's like a love story that, that happens there, but it's got, you know, it's got West Side Story elements all throughout it, which is, you know, the way he pays homage to shit. Hamilton is more magnanimous. Ha- Hamilton is more is more global um, and, a, and a really genius way of, of, of telling the story of Al- Alexander Hamilton being a veteran and the, the way our country was started and, and, and that kind of thing, the way that it's cast, the way that it, the, the hip hop of funny, it. And it's funny
0: and it's serious and it's heart-wrenching. There's Everything is in it.
1: That's the thing. It's like he has all those tenets of, of mm. traditional Broadway, but it's done, in my opinion, in a way that's just sexier. I mean, it's just done in a way that just feels more, it hits you in your heart more, you mm. know? Like, when I go and I watch uh, the first one that comes to mind is A Fiddler on the Roof, but that's actually pretty good.
0: I love Fiddler <laughs> uh, on the f- Roof.
1: Fiddler's great. Um, but, like, you know, going going to see, uh, well, Cats, or Wicked, or even I mean, Oh, even, I
0: love Wicked! <laughs> I
1: know, Wicked's great, but it, it, even, like, Rent, you know, it's like Now it's time to sing, I gotta sing, you know, it's like yeah, there's something about Hamilton where it's like... I think the hip-hop of it makes it more... Even though they're singing, even though we're getting into song now. And all, and honestly, Evita has this too. That's a good thing. Where it's like an opera. So Hamilton, no words are ever spoken. In Evita, no words are ever spoken. They're always sung. So, But Hamilton has the rapping. But that I think that helps it. Because when you're talking in a scene and we're having a scene that's dialogue and we're and we're just talking and then all of a sudden i start singing now you know it's like it doesn't feel real like i'm right. I, I can't follow that you know people love it but like i am like the idea is your emotions are so big in what's happening in the scene that you have to start singing but it's like i don't do that in reality
0: which i wish happened
1: <laughs> you know what <laughs> so i mean i'm either singing the whole time or I'm, i start to rap which like you know like that might happen in reality you know, it's just about what you can relate to, what feels real.
0: In a perfect world, I'll wake up and everyone is singing everything.
1: <laughs> hey. I would probably live in that world. But until <laughs> then, I'm just gonna I'm just, I'm just gonna watch Hamilton.
0: Yeah, it's great. Augie, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening, everyone, and for hanging in there. I know this is a long one, but my god, it's so worth it. Thanks everybody. <laughs>
1: Good night. Bye. <laughs>
0: Rate, review, subscribe, follow Hey Human Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.